Good morning, Christ Central Church. My name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it is an honor and privilege to bring to you God's Word. We are continuing in our series in the book of Galatians entitled Centered Faith, and this week we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. If you are able, we ask that you would Stand now for the reading of God's Word. Again, this is chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Paul says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's Holy Word, the prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's Word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak through me this morning, that you would use me, your servant, to bring your truth to your people. Would you allow me to get out of your way so that you might change our hearts this morning, transform us by encountering you, the living God. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2015, Harvard University released a report from what may be the longest-running study of adult life ever recorded. This study, commissioned in 1938, sought to track the lives of 724 young men, all aged 19 at the beginning of the study. And half of these men were sophomores at Harvard University, and the other half came from the poorest neighborhoods in the city of Boston. And Harvard was able to accumulate over 75 years of data, unheard of, for a study of this kind. And they studied all kinds of things. They studied the men's work history, their family lives, their medical history, what they liked to do for fun, how they spent their recreation and their vacation time. And they accumulated all of this data over 75 years. And after all this research, there was but one clear insight that rose to the top, one conclusion that could not be explained away. 
And that conclusion was that good relationships keep us happier and healthier. All of this data, and they were able to come to one conclusion that good relationships keep us happier and healthier. And yet the sad thing is that in the face of these findings, research shows that we are living in a society that is becoming less and less friendly. Don't get me wrong, our social media presence is certainly on the rise, but the amount of time that people spend interacting face-to-face with no distractions, no TV, no phone, no tablet, The amount of time that people spend face-to-face has dramatically decreased over the past 75 years. So then the question arises, are we all then destined to live unhappy, unhealthy lives? Our text this morning paints a dramatically different picture of friendship. Up until this point, Paul has left us in the dark as to why he was writing this letter. What was underlying, what was motivating this extremely harsh, harsh piece of penmanship. And it's here in chapter 4 that Paul reveals that underneath these strong words is a profound friendship. That what was motivating this whole letter was Paul's heartfelt love for some really dear friends. And so, in the faces of a society that is becoming increasingly less friendly, this morning I want to look more closely at the dynamics of a beautiful friendship. And my hope is, as we study the friendship that Paul had between the Galatians, that we might be able to cultivate the same in our own lives. And as we begin to look at this, there's two aspects of friendship that we see in our text that I want to highlight this morning. First, we want to look at the marks of a true friend. And then the second thing we want to look at is the responsibility of a true friend. The marks of a true friend or of true friendship. And and then secondly, the responsibility of a true, true friend. Let's begin. Starting in verse 12, the whole thrust of Paul's argument is that the reason the Galatians should trust him in what he is saying is because we are friends. Because we have relational capital. And then he reminds them of what their friendship looked like. And there are two primary marks of a true friend that we see in verses 12 to 20 that I want to highlight this morning. First, true friends are willing to meet you where you are at. And then secondly, true friends are willing to tell you the truth. Let's look first at how a true friend is willing to meet you where you're at. Our text begins in verse 12 with a somewhat confusing statement. Paul says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. The way we might say this today would be, try living in my shoes like I tried to live in yours. And the reason that Paul is saying this is because he knows that one of the greatest barriers to friendship is an unwillingness to understand and empathize with the other person. 
we have to try to understand what it's like to walk in their shoes. The opposite of this is to simply demand that someone become like you in order to be your friend. In college, I joined a fraternity and for the first 12 weeks during what they called pledgeship, all of us pledges were required to wear certain clothes, a uniform of sorts, clothes that the fraternity thought were appropriate, were cool. And if you didn't have these clothes, they required that you go out and buy them because you could not be a part of this organization, this community, unless you dressed a certain way. I didn't realize it at the time, but what a textbook case of inauthentic friendship. Because what the fraternity was declaring was, if you want to be friends with us, then you must first become like us. But true friendship is the exact opposite. It says, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to meet you where you're at. And Christ Central, this principle is so critical for us as a church. Because one of our core values is that we would be cross-cultural. That we would be a community made up of people who are inherently different. Who are not like each other. And don't be fooled, just because we put that on the website does not prevent us from demanding from one another that you become like me, rather than meet each other where we are at. And so I want to issue two warnings this morning. First, warning to the majority culture, to the white people. Watch yourselves. Be careful, majority culture, because our tendency is going to always be to believe that the way we do things is the way things are to be done. And unless we are thoughtfully and humbly engaging with people who are not like us, we will be completely blind to this reality. Be careful, white people. And to the minority culture, to the non-white people, My warning to you would be to not let the majority culture stifle who you are. To not allow the majority culture to set the norm, but instead be willing to bring your beautiful culture, your beautiful self to the table so that we might all be blessed. I want to give an example of this. A simple one, but I think one that is telling. Marvin, our assistant worship director, has begun to ask you, the congregation, to respond a little bit more in worship. And for some of you, this is very uncomfortable. And there might be a tendency for you to think that what Marvin is doing is wrong. That it's wrong because it makes you feel uncomfortable, because it's not how you've always done it. And I think both warnings apply here To the majority culture, you have to be careful not to judge these differences as right or wrong. And to Marvin, please don't allow the rack of response at times to stifle you, to prevent you bringing your full self to the table. Because you see, in order for us as a church to cultivate true friendship in the midst of diversity, we have to be ever so mindful to go and meet people where they are at. And at the same time, be willing to bring our true selves to the table. But not only is true friendship marked 
by being willing to meet someone where they are at, but it's also marked by being willing to tell our friends the truth. And brothers and sisters, this is much harder to do. Apart from these eight verses, it would be easy to read Paul as simply a confrontational dude that likes to pick fights. But what our text this morning reveals is how hard this letter must have been for Paul to write. Because Paul would have known that such a strong tone and such a harsh letter could have destroyed this friendship that he valued so much. I've shared this story before, but I feel as though it needs to be shared again in relationship to this text. A few years ago, I began to fall into a bit of a spiritual depression. My heart for the Lord and for people had begun to wane, and I had no idea what to do. And instead of engaging this heart issue, instead of seeking out help, I began to retreat relationally and shut down emotionally. I just started going through the motions, just trying to get by. And yet one of the primary catalysts for me getting out of that pit was a man sitting on the back row over there. You see, Pastor Daniel came after me. He climbed in the pit with me in a way that my wife couldn't, in a way that my family couldn't, in a way that only a true brother could. And the most significant way that he did that was he risked the relationship by being willing to say hard things to me, hard truth. And you see, Daniel didn't know for sure how I was going to respond, but he loved me enough that he was willing to hurt me for my good. Tim Keller says, if you love a person so selfishly that you cannot risk their anger you won't ever tell them the truth they need to hear. True friendship requires that we be willing to risk anger, that we love the person more than the relationship, because only then will we have the courage to speak the truth. That's what true friendship looked like, as lived out by the Apostle Paul. A true friend meets you where you're at and is willing to tell you the truth. But not only does our text reveal what a true friendship looks like, it also reveals what is the primary responsibility of a true friend. What we see here is that a true friend has but one job to do. And that one job is to encourage one another to keep the faith. To encourage one another to keep the faith. That's our job as a true friend. The whole reason that this letter needed to be written was because some bad dudes had come in and they tried to rob the Galatians of the gifts that they had been given in Christ. They lied to the Galatians. And the scary truth is that you and I are being lied to each and every day by the world, by the devil, by our own hearts. We are in a battle and life and death are at stake. And it is so very easy to fall away from the truth, isn't it? Just like the Galatians did. To believe the lies. And because of this reality, we as Christians have one important job to do for one another. We must be willing to say whatever it takes to keep one another believing. We have to say whatever it takes to keep one another believing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his 
famous work, Life Together, says it this way. He says, Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. When we see our friends looking to things other than Christ for joy and satisfaction, do we love them enough to call them back to the truth? Are we willing to say whatever it takes to remind them of where true joy is found? Or do we shy away because that's none of my business? I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to offend or upset anyone. And yet if Bonhoeffer is right, to do so is to be selfish and cruel. To be silent is motivated not by your concern for the other person, but rather your concern for self. A true friend must be willing to say whatever it takes. This letter is Paul's desperate attempt to say whatever it takes to keep the Galatians believing. Listen to how seriously Paul takes this responsibility. Verse 19 says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The anguish of of childbirth. I've seen that kind of anguish with my own eyes and it is no joke. I think it is safe to say that the anguish of childbirth is the greatest kind of anguish. And brothers and sisters, there is no greater gift than to have someone in your life who anguishes over the formation of Christ in you. Do you have that in your life? As I was studying and praying this week, there were times where I felt that anguish for you, Christ Central Church, where I truly long in the depths of my soul for each of you to have Christ formed in your hearts. And in those moments, I prayed for you that you would not believe the lies, but rest in the truth of Jesus Christ. And then, if I'm honest, there were other moments where that anguish was absent. And when I was thoughtful in those moments, I would ask God to grow that kind of love for you in me. Because I know that that heart comes only as a gift from Him. So I asked Him to give me that heart of anguish. And I charge you, church, to do the same, to ask God to give you that heart so that you can be a friend who from that anguish embraces this responsibility and is quick to say whatever it takes to keep your friends believing. At the same time, I encourage you, would you seek out friends like that? Friends with that kind of anguish, spouses like that, city group leaders like that, that have the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Because we were created for that kind of friendship. Harvard actually got it right. That the true joy, the true happiness, the true health is found in cultivating friendship like that. Now as we prepare to close, I want to address the elephant in the room 
which is what are we to do with the fact that most of the time we fail to do this, be this kind of friend for one another. We don't live up to this standard that Paul shows us here in Galatians 4. So how do we fix that? Do we simply try harder? Do we beat ourselves up every time that we fail to live up to this standard? Is that the point of this text, that we would all leave today feeling guilty because we are not the kind of friend that Paul was for the Galatians? I don't think so. I want you to look again with me at verse 14. I think what we see here is that the way that we cultivate this type of friendship in us is to look to the one who has perfectly friended you and I. Verse 14 says, Paul says, In my time of weakness and distress, you Galatians received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What we see here is that the hallmark of friendship, that which all other friends are measured by, is that of Jesus Christ. So let's now look again at the marks of true friendship and see how Jesus is the perfect expression of them. A true friend must be willing to meet you where you are at. Jesus, the God of the universe, put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Philippians 2 says, Though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus laid down His divinity. He he laid down His God card and He took on humanity. The Creator became like the creation in order to meet us where we are at. What a beautiful picture of friendship. And a true friend also must be willing to tell the truth. And in spite of unfathomable opposition... Jesus Christ refused to stop telling the truth, the truth that we so desperately needed to hear, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it was through telling this truth that it cost Jesus His very life. He was willing to die so that we might hear and receive that truth. You see, brothers and sisters, in Jesus we experience perfect friendship. We are a friend of God. There is no more glorious truth in all the world. And may that friendship be the thing that empowers us to be friends and to allow others to friend us. A few weeks ago, Adam Clayton the bass guitarist for the world-renowned band U2, was awarded the Stevie Ray Vaughan Award, an award given to those who are winning the battle against drug and alcohol addiction. And I want to share with you a portion of his acceptance piece. Clayton says, I didn't think you could be in a band and not drink. It is so much a part of our culture But I was lucky because I had three friends that could see what was going on and love me enough to take up the slack of my failings. Bono, The Edge, and Larry truly supported me before and after I entered recovery 
and I am unreservedly grateful to their friendship, understanding, and support. I am in awe of the extraordinary work we have done together. You see, we have a pact with each other. In our band, no one will be a casualty. We all come home or none of us come home. No one will be left behind. And then Adam turns to his fellow band members and he says to them, Thank you for honoring that promise and letting me be in your band. About a year ago, I received word that one of the guys that I discipled while I was doing campus ministry at Georgia Tech had walked away from his wife and had walked away from the faith. And if I'm honest, in spite of all the great things that happened those four years while I was on the campus, all of the lives that I got to see God restore and redeem, when I look back, I can't help but think about this one man. And it breaks my heart. I so desperately long for Christ to be formed in Him again. Christ Central, what if we were to make a vow this morning in the same vein as the band U2? A vow declaring that we would fight with God's help for no casualties at Christ Central Church. And in order to make that vow come true, we would commit to friendship, to real, truth-telling, Christ-forming friendship. Church, would you make that vow with me today. I can't, I can't do it alone. Would you commit to look for those who are friend needy amongst us and would you go meet them where they are at? And at the same time, would you commit to opening yourself up to true friendship? Because that's the only way we're going to make it. Amen? Let's pray.